All right, I want to go to Ezra today right off. I'm not going to stay there long, but I'm going to go there. Let's go to Ezra 5, the last verse. I sort of summarized there and didn't actually, I don't think, included the last verse yesterday. But the question had come up about building the house of God. And in verse 17 it says, Now therefore, if it seem good to the king, let there be search made in the king's treasure house, which is there at Babylon, whether it be so the decree was, that a decree was made of Cyrus the king to build this house of God at Jerusalem, and let the king send his pleasure to us concerning this matter. So they wanted to establish if that decree had been made, and if so, was it valid, and what would be the king's pleasure? Then Darius the king made a decree, and search was made in the house of the rolls, the scrolls, where the treasures were laid up in Babylon. And there was found at Agnetha, in the palace that is in the province of the Medes, a roll, and therein was a record thus written. In the first year of Cyrus the king, the same Cyrus the king made a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be builded, the place where they offered sacrifices, and let the foundations thereof be strongly laid, the height thereof threescore cubits, and the breadth thereof threescore cubits. Then it goes on down to explain more about it, but I think rather than going there right at the moment, we'll come back to that at some point. I want to establish some things from our previous understanding in Worldwide and see if perhaps we can add some uh, detail and perhaps some better understanding, being 21 years down the road from Herbert Armstrong's death, about what is going on and what must be done. Now, I gave you a thumbnail sketch yesterday, perhaps it was the whole thumb, uh, of events that must occur very soon now uh, in the progress of the church toward the goals that God has set for it. I know I went over an awful lot of scriptures very fast and did not turn to most of them. Uh, most of you are quite familiar with them. We've been there several times, if not many times, to some of them over the last several years, so I was trying to put it in a synopsis or a summary with reference to those scriptures. So if some of you uh, were wondering, well, what does that say, and were thumbing back and forth trying to figure out where I was going and, and so on, I apologize for that, but uh, we'll look at some a little more in detail today and go to the scriptures themselves because I think that we might be able to understand some things better than we have heretofore even in the last two or three years. Let's review for a moment the old worldwide view we had of the end times. And I think that I can say it in a few sentences, and that is this, that we had our telephone network all figured out, and a call would be made to all the local churches who then had a local network, and certain ones would call others, and just before all hell broke loose, I don't think we said it that way, but basically that was the idea <clears throat> in this country, we would all jump on a 747 and fly to Jerusalem, and there we would stay for, uh, what, 30 days or 45 days, whatever it was there with Daniel 12, and then have either 30 or 45 days to walk to Petra. And then this country would go down, and we would be protected, and we were also kind of looking for 144,000 people to be in the church because as we built 
a face feast attendance of 70, 80, 90, 100,000. For some reason, we got to thinking, or somebody said, well, when we get to 144,000, this will happen because that'll be the first fruits. Very naive, because Christ called, I mean, Paul called the people of Achaia the first fruits of Achaia, and uh, several places referred to the early New Testament church as being part of the first fruits, as indeed Hebrews 11 includes people even from the Old Testament in that number. 144,000 are the first fruits, Revelation 14:4. No more, no less. That is the number in the first resurrection. 144,000 who are the bride of Christ is described in Revelation 19 and 20. So we're not waiting for that number. In fact, now that we understand the church, most of it is going into the tribulation and only a small remnant, a little smaller than 10%, will be gathered and will be the ones God works with as his faithful remnant here at the end time. Therefore, we can say, I think, uh, with confidence that this church or that church or another church is not the Philadelphia church and their members are going to be protected while all you Laodiceans out there are going into the tribulation. That is not the way the scripture reads. In fact, the scripture reads that God will gather his remnant from all the four corners of the earth. And I firmly believe at this time that there are faithful people scattered throughout all the organizations and some that are in no organization formally are still remaining faithful to God's word and to his truth and are still seeking and learning and trying to overcome and grow. It isn't exactly the amount of technical knowledge and truth we have that counts. Where do you read that in the what God told the seven churches? doesn't say it. The one common denominator to all was that we grow and overcome. The word overcome is used for all seven. So we might be puffed up here or there, some of us, for different organizations. They could include us with knowledge. But that knowledge means nothing, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, unless there is love involved and unless there's growth and overcoming and changing and transformation in our lives and walking by the Spirit is involved. Without those things, the knowledge means nothing. It just puffs up and creates vanity and pride, which God resists. So it isn't knowledge. Really, it comes down to will we change, will we grow, and will we overcome? That's what God is looking for in all of us, no matter what our level of understanding. Yes, understanding is important. We're to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Savior. So we're not to ever stop growing in knowledge. Those who stop with what Herbert Armstrong knew are in danger because they're not moving forward. They've stopped there. Now, what he gave us was a good basis, yes. Not all was true. We've learned since some things. But he did his job. Okay. When we were to jump on that plane we read of in Matthew 24. And I want to go back there to Matthew 24 and pick this story up a little bit. He talks about the seals of Revelation here in the beginning of this chapter and talks about us enduring to the end in verse 13. And those who endure and, and make it through all this will be saved. 
And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to all the world for a witness to all nations, and then shall the end come. When the preaching of the gospel is finished, the end will come then. We know when that is. It's when the two witnesses finish preaching, are killed in Jerusalem, and three and a half days later the resurrection occurs, and that is the end, marks the very end of this age. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, whoso reads, let him understand. What he has just written here is very elusive, very difficult. I think what he is implying probably is that most people will not understand what this means, and the ramifications of it. Why would you write something and say, let him who reads understand, if there was a great danger, they would misinterpret or not understand what you just said? I mean, you don't need that parenthetical statement unless there's a danger there, okay? Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Now there's, I think, where we got the interpretation that our first flight would be on an airplane to Jerusalem in what we thought was Judea, and from there we would walk to Petra. Now where did we get the Petra idea? Did we get it from the Bible? Mm, doubt it. We got it from Protestant commentaries who thought that that was a place of refuge where God would take his people. I don't find it as such in the Bible. Now I do find, if I do a word study on the word Zion, dozens and dozens of references to Zion as a place of safety, as a place of refuge, as a place where God will protect his people over and over and over again. But we assumed Judea is where they say Judea is today in the Middle East. I am beginning to have serious misgivings about that being the case. Uh, one of the daughters in the days of Joshua when the land was divided was given the city of Judah or Utah, uh, the J being silent in Hebrew, in Hebrew. So actually she was given the town of Utah. Judah and Utah or virtually the same word. Up here, the edge, the western edge of Mount or of, uh, Zion National Park, there is a cinder cone that sticks up, all volcanic cinders. It's called Fire Pit Knoll, I think, in, uh, in park nomenclature. But out of the base of that volcanic black obsidian mountain, there is a rift valley uh, an earthquake rift, a fault line that is actually a, a valley fairly deep, that emanates right from the base of that cinder cone and goes west, and then there is a valley that crosses it. Emphasis on crosses. It forms a cross. It is a ta in Hebrew, a T or a ta, and it comes right out of that volcanic cinder cone. 
I am coming to believe that that may have been the original Mount Sinai and that the cross of Christ has its base right in it is a geological formation. That Utah and Judah were the same thing. We're going to see some scriptures that might be difficult to interpret any other way. Why did God begin the end-time church in the southwestern United States? Well, it began it up in Oregon, actually, but then he moved it to a land of traffic and merchants, as Ezekiel 17 says. And if God started it in this area, and the former temple was built nearby, would it not stand a reason that what he had started here, he would finish here? Now, I can't give you chapter and verse on that, but that's a matter of logic and what God tends to do. And where is the end-time church of spiritual Judea today? Mostly in this country. Now, there is a plethora of backup information to what I just said, and I'm not going to take time to spend the next six hours laying all of that on you about geological formations, about place names, about history. Uh, I'll give you maybe a few scriptures before this is done that might tie in with it, but uh, that's for another time and place and way. Well, maybe not a different place, but a different time and different approach. But here in Matthew 24, <clears throat> we see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Now, the reason I came here is that this indicates that it's time for God's people to flee because uh, that abomination is going to be set up and he's going to, to destroy the holy place that God has established here in the end time. And anyone who is left there will be destroyed with it. And we'll see that even more clearly in a moment in Daniel. But let's establish once again, even though we probably recognize it, that this chapter of Matthew 24 was not just of that temple that they were standing looking at when this chapter began, when the disciples asked Christ about it. Uh, this chapter culminates in the return of Christ. So it was not just a prophecy of that temple they were looking at being destroyed in that day, which did happen in 70 A.D., and it's been gone ever since, not rebuilt. Uh, political reasons keep it from being built and or rebuilt in the Middle East. I just read an article today uh, that said that the Arabs are the ones digging there instead of the Jews, and they say that the Wailing Wall was nothing more than the part of the Al-Aqsa Mosque originally, and that that mosque was built prior to the one that is there today, the Dome of the Rock, which was built in the 700s. So they claim the Jews were never there. Now, a few years ago, I would poo-pooed that, but at the moment, I'm beginning to say, hmm, there may be something to that. We'll watch the story over there as those people scurry around digging feverishly to find things that pertain to the temple, the temple service, the original things that supposedly were there, and come up with nothing. All the digging they've done over the last decades have produced zero, nothing. Wonder why. I wonder if they're barking up the wrong tree or digging down the wrong hole. 
or something of that nature. But if you go to verse 26, verse 27 here of Matthew 24, it talks about Christ returning, and then immediately after the tribulation of those days, the day of the Lord starts. Worldwide always put the day of the Lord as the last year of the great tribulation. I don't know why we didn't read this. It says the tribulation comes, and immediately after the days of tribulation starts the day of the Lord. It didn't fit our idea. We didn't know what to do with that extra year, the day of the Lord. So we just backed it off into the tribulation. Now we understand that that is the year when God will be unleashing all kinds of forces on this earth while his church is on honeymoon with Christ, not going to war or working for a year of honeymoon with him before coming back with him to make war. But that establishes the time element of Matthew 24. So, that makes it clear that when we go back to the book of Daniel, does it not, and we read of the abomination of desolation, that that also is an end-time fulfillment. Now, I'm making this statement here, and now before we even go there, because if you read the Protestant commentaries, when they start talking about the 70 weeks prophecy and the uh, 1150 days or 2300 days sacrifice there and so on, they always go back to ancient history culminating in the first advent of Christ. And they do not project it really to the end time at all. But it's all a matter of ancient history. The church tried to bring it forward somewhat, still using the formula presented by the Protestant commentaries. But Matthew, quoting the very direct words of Christ himself, and this is repeated in Luke 21 by Luke, who said, I come to set the story straight, if it was made crooked anywhere. And they place the abomination of desolation at the very end, at the beginning of the great tribulation and the flight of God's end-time people to a place of safety culminating in the return of Christ at the end of the tribulation. So, let's understand something here. I'm going to go to Daniel 9. Here is the situation where it's the first year of Darius. Uh, you'll recall uh, Haggai, or the beginning of the book of Haggai, is in the second year of Darius. So a little bit of uh, a time frame difference there, about a year later. But this is in the first year of Darius where Daniel is making a prayer. And it says that it's in the first year of his reign, I, under, I Daniel, understood my books the number of the years whereof the word of the eternal came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So Daniel had been reading the scroll by Jeremiah, and he understood, because he had been taken captive, had been made a eunuch, along with Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and others of the princes of uh, Judah. And he began reading Jeremiah, and understood from reading that, Jeremiah 25, 29, somewhere through there, that that captivity would last 70 years. And at the end of 70 years, God would lift uh, the penalty of being under the Babylonian yoke and that they would begin to return to Judah. 
wherever that was. But it would be accomplished in 70 years, okay? Now, hold your finger there. And since Daniel is an end-time book, let's go back to Zechariah. We've been here many, many times, but this is germane to the story. Zechariah was written and started, uh, Haggai wrote over a period of several months. And the book of Zechariah begins in the eighth month in the second year of Darius, same year, a year after Daniel uh, had written what he wrote in Daniel 9. So Zechariah began his story right in the middle of Haggai's story. So they are part and parcel together as prophecies. He starts out by saying, don't be as your fathers. Uh, this was written right at the end of the 70-year prophecy of, of Jeremiah, at the end of the Babylonian captivity. So he's telling those who came out of the captivity or who were still in the captivity and just about to come out if they so desired, would be released at least, to tell them, don't be as your fathers were those people who preceded you, those people whom God took into captivity because of national and personal sin. Don't be like them. Okay, then it talks about uh, at night a man riding on a red horse in the bottom of the myrtle trees and these different horses which are in prophecy and in the book of Revelation as well. And I don't want to go there, but I want to come down to verse 12, it said the earth sits still and is basically at rest, uh, hasn't actually erupted into World War III yet, I believe is the meaning here. I mean, we hear of wars and rumors of wars, but the earth is still essentially at, I would say, uneasy rest, maybe, before this whole conflagration starts. So... At the end of that 70 years is the setting. How long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which you have had an indignation these three score and ten years? And the Eternal answered the angel who talked with me with good words and comfortable words. Hey, everything's going to be all right, basically. So the angel who communed with me said to me, Cry you, or preach, or say, or speak, saying... Thus says the eternal of hosts, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. He's a jealous God. Now, he punishes his people when they sin, but he still loves them and is jealous of them and for them. And he said, I am very sore displeased with the heathen that are at ease, for I was but a little displeased, and they helped forward the affliction. Therefore, thus says the eternal, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies, my house shall be built in it, says the eternal of hosts, and a line shall be stretched forth upon Jerusalem. Now, Haggai talks, and that is the message of Haggai, to Zerubbabel and Joshua, who can easily be proved to be the two witnesses at the end of the age that the temple is to be built. And that Jerusalem has to be built, that a line will be stretched upon it. Now, we've used the code words Jerusalem and Zion from Hebrews 12 to show that that is talking, first of all, to the church. So there has to be a spiritual temple built, and we're to be the vessels of that temple. And our bodies are the temple of the Spirit. So 
We understand the spiritual side of that, don't we? But is there, possibly, a physical side to that as well? Is there more meaning here than perhaps we have seen? Because we didn't think that we were to go to Jerusalem in the Middle East and build a temple. The Jews have aspirations of doing that, and we hear all kinds of rumors about it from time to time. But the Arabs are blocking it in any case. So we keep thinking, when? And, of course, the world is looking there and saying, when this temple is built, all these things are going to happen. And I believe that the Antichrist will probably set up headquarters there and say that is the capital of the world and always has been. But remember that Satan is a master counterfeiter. And whatever God has made, wherever he has made it, you can bet that Satan will have counterfeited it in some way. It may well be that the beast and false prophet, Satan's two witnesses, will set up their offices in that Jerusalem. They are fake prophets and probably will be in a fake situation or uh, place, location, I was trying to say. But this is an end-time prophecy in Zechariah. If you can go over and, and read about uh, Joshua, you can read about uh, Zerubbabel. Go to chapter 4, verse 14. I referred to this yesterday and did not read it, but he said, then he said, speaking of these two, we're standing, these two olive trees on the sides of the candlestick. Who are they? These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. And there is no such other expression in the Bible that this could possibly be referring to than Revelation 11. And Revelation is indeed an end-time book and speaking of those events culminating in the return of Christ. And in fact, those two witnesses mentioned there are killed in the streets of Jerusalem uh, three and a half days before Christ returns. So this section is unavoidably tied together with end-time events. It is not just ancient history, whatever, but is part of the prophecies of the end time. Okay? What I'm establishing here is that what Daniel was saying in Daniel 9 about the end time, and we'll show even a reference to the end time there in just a moment, what he was referring to when he read about the captivity and the 70 years is also an end time thing. Because he had just gone through that 70 years and says, what does it mean? What's next? And then the angel came and started giving him information. So he had read that. Okay? Now let's go back to the book of Daniel. He says, I read about Jeremiah the prophet, and I set my face with prayer and supplication and fasting and sackcloth and ashes, verse 3, and talked to the great and dreadful God keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments, verse 4, commandment keeping very important in the end time. And he says, we're confused. We don't know what's going on down in verse 7. So he was praying for the confusion to clear so that he might understand. Now we are groping ourselves in a very confusing time in God's church to understand what is happening, how it is happening, how it will go come to pass. 
So then Daniel recites his sins and those of his people and asks God forgive them all, uh, verse 11, and how God's uh, wrath had come upon them, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Now, we came to the essentially 70 years that the church has existed at the end time within the clutches of Babylon. No, we were not physically enslaved in the same way that those Jews were in Babylon when they were taken out of their homes and taken to Babylon. But the net effect is the same. We were a people who were living in Babylon, were told by a spiritual leader that we needed to come out of her, my people, and we began to keep the commandments of God. But the influence of this nation and this world and Satan's culture was still very, very heavy upon us. And we never did really manage to escape the clutches of it. Now God tells us here at the end that we are going to have to completely escape. That system is going down, and anyone that's part of it is going down with it. So we have to get away from it. You know, when something's about to fall, what do you do? You run. Let's say something starts leaning. What do people do? Run! Get away from it! It's falling! And then it falls. And you, man, sure glad I ran away from that. Same thing's going to happen to this culture and this society and this world. It's going to fall on its nose. You better not be under it or anywhere near it. It could fall on you. So anyway, we have these 70 years at end, and the lament is made in Zechariah 1. But God was a little displeased, and I think he was a little displeased with Herbert Armstrong and the end-time church. And then he said, when the heathen came in, I became sorely displeased. So it was not until after Herbert Armstrong left and the Takachis took over that God became sorely displeased and destroyed that church, splintered it, shattered it, spewed it out of his mouth. But he says, I'm going to return to Jerusalem with mercies, and my house shall be built in it. So worldwide, as the former temple in the end time has been destroyed, and God is going to rebuild. Many, many scriptures that show that. Then he goes on down to talk about my city through prosperity shall yet be spread abroad, says God, and shall yet comfort Zion, and shall yet choose Jerusalem. Then he talks about uh, the villages or towns without walls that will be built in the next chapter. And it talks about Christ rising up to do his holy work at the end of that chapter and tells us to flee Babylon uh, just before that in that chapter. So it's all talking about right here at the end time. All right, let's go back to Daniel. Uh, we've already broached the subject of the abomination of desolation. For a moment, I want to flash back to chapter 8, uh, where it talks about the ram uh, and the goat, and the goat pushing at the ram, breaking his horn, the front horn, then breaking his back horn, and then the horn of the goat being broken right after that, and the land divided among four different uh, princes or governors or kings. Or horns. But notice the context here. 
This is what I want us to get, because we've already shown from Matthew 24, Luke 21, that the abomination of desolation has to occur at the end time, and it's the beginning of the Great Tribulation and the church fleeing to a place of safety, okay? So that event becomes a very pivotal one in end-time understanding of what's going on with the church and God's people. So let's go down to verse 11. Yes, this little horn uh, magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And an host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression, and it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. So this is speaking of an abomination of desolation that takes away the daily sacrifice of God's people and prospers thereafter for a period of time, the times of the Gentiles. Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said to that certain saint which spoke, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation, or the abomination of desolation, in different words, speaking of the same event, to give both the sanctuary and the host, the people, to be trodden underfoot. And he said to me, To 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. My margin says in the Hebrew that means evenings and mornings, or morning and evening sacrifices, and it did talk about the sacrifices being taken away. So possibly 1,150 days here. What is the time setting? The time setting is when the sanctuary is defiled and how long will it be before it is cleansed? Well, we know that from Matthew 24 that when the abomination of desolation is set up, that is the time for the church to flee and then you have a 1260-day or three-and-a-half-year or 42-month period of time known as the Great Tribulation in which the witnesses will preach, and so on. So this sanctuary is defiled at the setting of the abomination of desolation, and it will be defiled for apparently 1,150 days. Now, we also know that at least by the beginning of the Great Tribulation, there will be a change in the cycles of the heavenly calendar, and we'll go back to a 360-day uh, calendar at that time. Maybe before, but at least by the time it starts, otherwise all the prophecies cannot fit together. So, if you use a 360-day year, which will be in effect by then, when this prophecy takes place, that's uh, three years, 70 days. Then the sanctuary will be cleansed. Now, we know the tribulation lasts uh, three and a half years. So sometime into the tribulation, just before it ends, it appears the sanctuary is going to be cleansed. Because it started when it was defiled, okay? So it has to be thereafter. I think that's pure and simple. Now, that is some insight into the abomination of desolation. I want to go to verse 17 for a moment. Uh, so he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell upon my face. But he said to me, Understand, Daniel, for at the time of the end shall be the vision. So they can go back and try to apply this to Antiochus Epiphanes and come forward to Christ, and certainly there could be a uh, 
a former fulfillment based on Christ's coming, but the ultimate and final fulfillment of this prophecy has to be the time of the end, or words have no meaning. The things Daniel wrote have no meaning if that is not the case, because the angel told him, this event is at the time of the end. Any more questions on that? You can go to your Protestant commentaries all you want, and you can read about the decree of Artaxerxes, and you can read about Christ coming and so on the first time. And yes, there could be a former fulfillment. But the final one, and the only one really that counts for you and me, is the one just ahead. That other's past history. Christ has come and gone. And is coming back. And we may live, some of us will be alive and remain, to see that event. Some of us will die before then. But it's going to happen. So this is the fulfillment I am most interested in, okay? It has to do with me and you. All right. Let's go to Daniel 9 then. Back to Daniel 9. Uh, this is where we started, showing that uh, at the end of 70 years there would be a release. We've gone to Zechariah and shown that there is a 70-year period that is uh, similar to this at the end time. And Daniel, we have already established, is an end time book about the end time. So that adds to the strength of the statement that the 70 years of Zechariah 1 is the same 70 years of this prophecy. He was writing about the history of the 70 years he had just experienced, but the angel made it clear that there's another fulfillment later on down the pike at the time of the end. So, he says, when will you shine your face upon the sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake? Verse 17 of Daniel 9. So he is referring to history of when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple, and 70 years later he's wondering when it will be cleansed. But the angel had made it clear, uh, even though there will be a fulfillment here and the people will go back and build a temple, there's an end time because that Daniel is an end time book, and it says you can't even understand Daniel till the time of the end. Protestant commentaries started writing back in the 17, 1800s, uh, trying to explain the book of Daniel, and God said it had been sealed. So you can't put too much stock in what those people have to say, okay? We need to understand it as God's people with his Holy Spirit in the light of the end-time church, which they don't understand, and the failure of worldwide and the reestablishing of a remnant temple. There is where the understanding might begin to, be under, to, to come to light and the confusion removed. Verse 20, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, presenting my supplication before the eternal my God, for the holy mountain of my God, while I was speaking, Gabriel showed up. Verse 22, and he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give you skill and understanding. Now Daniel could see what had happened in the past 70 years, and this was the second year after, no, the first year after that when Darius was there. At the beginning of your supplications, the commandment came forth. That would be from God to Gabriel. 
And I came to show you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore understand the matter and consider the vision. Seventy weeks are determined upon your people and upon the holy city to finish, and a better translation there might be to restrain, that's in my margin as well, to restrain the transgression, to hold back transgression, to make an end of sin and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy and anoint the most holy. Now, the way Worldwide has translated or has understood this or tried to understand it in the past, and I remember Ted Armstrong saying this in a sermon many, many years ago, that this had to be the return of Christ because you can't have a restraint or a finishing of transgression, an end of sins, a reconciliation for iniquity, and everlasting righteousness until he comes back. I say that you can't have that even when he's back. So that is not the critical and key factor here. Will there be sin in the millennium? Yes, there will be salty, miry, marshy places scattered around even the millennium, according to Ezekiel 47. There will be unjust, foul, evil people still on the earth when the holy city, the new Jerusalem, is here. Now, someone is planning on singing the holy city during the feast, I think still, perhaps. But... I, got, I saw that on the schedule, and it never occurred to me before, but I got to thinking about it, and so did the individual uh, as well, because I, I brought it up. And, yeah, well, he'd been thinking about changing the words. It talks about the, the streets, the gates are open wide, and all who will might enter, and no one is denied. Huh? What does it say back in Revelation? It says the holy city will be here and the unjust and the thieves and the polluted and the unclean will not be allowed to enter. They'll still be around when the holy city is here. If you haven't yet, you need to go back and listen to that series I did while still in Worldwide, I mean in Great Church of the Great God, entitled um, How Exclusive is the Church? The title in that sense is a little misleading but I began to find some things in Scripture that blew me away almost uh, and understanding things that we had never understood in Worldwide that were clearly uh, wrong according to putting all the Scriptures together about that time. So, there will still be sin around once Christ is here. And there will still be sin at the time of the last great day when all those people are brought up. There will be people at the end of the millennium when Satan is loosed for a little while. He will deceive masses of people and they will come in war against Christ and his bride and his government. That's a sin. So when Christ comes is not the pivotal key here, so very obviously. There is, where did I see that this morning? Was it here in this context? No, and I may have written it down. I might come to it here in a minute. Where it talks about God forgiving and God removing our sins in one day, as it says there in Zechariah 3. 
and is quoted in Isaiah and other scriptures, where God is going to turn and shine his face upon us. And that once the latter temple is established and peace is brought there, that it will never again be torn down, that we have been enabled to be in God's eyes through the sacrifice of our Savior made righteous and clean. And we will not then be polluting the sanctuary, but will be adjudged by God as clean, even though we might still make mistakes at times. But His power, His Spirit, His mind will come upon us and His Spirit will be uh, brought forth as per Acts 2 and Joel 2. And it will be a greater, far greater, manifestation of the Spirit of God then than we have today. Young men, old men, dream dreams, young women, so on, you know, and, and the healings will occur and all the things that happen in Acts 2 and Joel 2. So a change will be made prior to Christ returning. I think that's important to recognize as we begin to examine this. And to seal up the vision and prophet. A prophecy, it says in the King James, the prophet is better, and to anoint the most holy. And I've done some checking, and that could mean the most holy ones, those whom God has anointed. Now, Christ has already been anointed. He was anointed long ago. So this is talking about a different anointing. Well, who was anointed at the end to finish the work of God? The two. It could be very much a reference to them because through them the latter temple is built, and God then begins to dwell in it and to show mercy, forgiveness to it. Could that be possibly the explanation to this? Remember, it doesn't go all the way back to Artaxerxes and Christ's first coming. This is an end-time prophecy. Know therefore and understand that from... All right, it, it pinpoints the beginning of when this prophecy begins to take effect. Know therefore and understand. This is important, in other words. Get this. Grasp this. Understand this. Don't miss this. That from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem under the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks, three score and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, or the ditch, better translated, even in troublous times. So, at the time of the end, there will be a command given to build Jerusalem. And that's the time that this prophecy actually begins. The final fulfillment of it. As I say, there could be a former fulfillment, but there's always a latter-day fulfillment. We've already established that this is an end-time prophecy and what will happen to God's people in the latter days. <clears throat> so there will come a command to build Jerusalem. I want to flip back to Jeremiah just a moment. This is a very interesting scripture. Jeremiah 9, God is saying what he will do to Jerusalem. Verse 11. Jeremiah 9, verse 11. And I will make Jerusalem heaps, or piles of rubble, and a den of dragons. Lizards will live there. 
And I will make the cities of Judah desolate without an inhabitant. Jerusalem in the Middle East has never been made desolate without an inhabitant. The cities of Judah there, even though Judea was, or Judah was taken captive if they were there, those cities were never made completely desolate. People were left behind by Nebuchadnezzar to do the farms and so on. He also brought in Gentile peoples from other places to fill in the population to be sure there was agriculture and commerce going on so that it might be taxed. Well, those Gentiles are not lizards, nor were the Judeans who were left behind. That city has been there since it was established there, and it has never been without inhabitants, nor have those villages and towns around it. So how does this ever get fulfilled? And in fact, what does he say in the very next verse? This is something, apparently, that is difficult to understand. What does it say? Who is the wise man that may understand this? It isn't in your history books. If it pertains to that city, it's a head-scratcher. Because that has never historically happened. So it raises a major question. Who can possibly understand this? And who is he to whom the mouth of the Eternal has spoken, that he may declare it, for what the land perishes and is burned up like a wilderness, that none passes through? Who can understand this and declare that that's what would happen and it would become a den of lizards and not people? Big question. Then he talks about scattering the people among the heathen, verse 16. So there is something to do with history and with the city of Jerusalem and Judea that is a head-scratcher. Okay? I'm not going to try to establish any more than that at this juncture, except that that city over there has never gone through this, and that's why it is a head-scratcher. So there must be an alternative explanation of some kind, somehow, somewhere, and someone must come to understand that and then be able to declare it. I think I know a man at this point who has very likely come up with the answer to that, and has imparted that information to us, and I believe that an answer is forthcoming pretty shortly. Of a, an original Jerusalem, the original site that has been made absolutely desolate, and all the towns and cities around it have been made desolate, and even covered to the point they cannot be found, and today are a den of dragons and lizards, and that Jerusalem must be builded in her place, her own place. Let's go back to Zechariah for a moment. I, I always forget this one. That's chapter 12. It talks about a burden, a heavy saying, in other words, the beginning of chapter 12, of Zechariah about Israel. 
The burden of the word of the Eternal for Israel, says the Eternal, which stretches forth the heavens and lays the foundation of the earth and forms the spirit of man within him, within him. Now there's a declaration that there is a great God who could create and did. He didn't say, uh, this is the Lord saying this, but he made a statement there, which I think is important, because here at the end time, God is going to make it known who he is. And when all those prophecies of Ezekiel begin to take place, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and all the others as well, but I mention Ezekiel especially because he says dozens of times, for they will know that I am the Lord. So this is a statement of being. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling to all the people round about, when they shall be in the siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem. So there's going to come a time when people will burden themselves with Jerusalem, okay? And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. Now I ask you, whom is God preparing to use to cut people who burden themselves with Jerusalem. Jerusalem first being the church of God, Hebrews 12. Jerusalem second being a location that they will ultimately destroy when the abomination of desolation is set up, okay? So God's people will be at Jerusalem, and they will not just flee for their lives, but God says in Micah 4 and in Isaiah about, where is it, 41 or 42, I forget exactly, where it says, I will make you a new sharp threshing instrument. And he tells Zerubbabel that the mountains will become plains before him. The governments of this world cannot stand before the servants of God when he gives them the power to do what must be done. So those who burden themselves with Jerusalem, and as shown in other scriptures, are going to be cut in pieces by those whom God has placed in charge. Not by a bunch of Edomite Jews in the Middle East. Okay? In that day, says the Eternal, I will smite every horse with astonishment and his rider with madness. And I will open my eyes upon the house of Judah and will smite every horse of the people with blindness. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, The inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be my strength, and the Lord of hosts their God. Who will govern Jerusalem at that time? Zerubbabel. He is the counterpart of Moses, Moses and Elijah, Zerubbabel and Joshua. So he will be the leading governor of Judah along with Joshua. In that day, this is speaking of the end time when people burden themselves with Jerusalem. Will I make the governors of Judah like a hearth of fire among the wood? Fire will come from the mouths, and people who try to kill them will burn with fire. And like a torch of fire in a sheath. This isn't millennial. This isn't the peace of God and the righteous reign of Christ at that time. This is a time of great terror and horror. And like a torch of fire in a sheath, and they shall devour all the people round about on the right hand and on the left. And notice this. Jerusalem shall be inhabited again, 
in her own place, even in Jerusalem. Why does it write it like that? Well, because Jeremiah said Jerusalem would become desolate in a den of dragons. That apparently there would be a false Jerusalem set somewhere else. And Jerusalem would have to be built and established again in her own original place. That it had been removed. Now there, if that is a correct analysis, is a huge counterfeit of Satan the devil who has removed the original place of the Garden of Eden, of Jerusalem, and of Zion, and where things actually started. Therefore, maybe it sheds some serious light on Daniel 9. Know therefore, verse 25, and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem, there will be a command to restore and build Jerusalem at the end. End time prophecy right here. Zechariah 12 is about as end time as you can get. All right? Now, keep your finger there. We're going to see a little more to back this up. I mentioned yesterday, Isaiah 40 through 45, and referred to it, but did not turn here. But I said at the time that I wanted to review Daniel a little bit and about some of the prophecies that are written there. Well, last night I got thinking about it, actually more about like five this morning, and got up and read through this again because it was on my mind. and I think may have added a little detail. Now, you might remember several years ago, I, gave the, I went through Daniel at the Feast of Tabernacles and referred to Daniel 9 and the 70 weeks prophecy and said that it referred to the church and the spiritual temple and that when the command came to build the latter temple, that's what this was talking about. And then once the towns without walls were built, the abomination of desolation would be set up there. God, be, I mean, Satan wanting to destroy God's people, not in Jerusalem, but in the towns without walls. Now, we may be able to add more to that. Notice the context beginning in Isaiah 40. Comfort my people, says your God. Give them knowledge that will comfort them, that will strengthen them, that will make them feel good, instead of always bad. <laughs> but they, they need some comforting words, some good news, if you will. Speak comfortably to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received of the Eternal's hand double for all her sins. He's going to give us back double blessing for all the punishment that we have had to have because of our many sins. We are scattered today, we're being spewed out of his mouth today because of our sins. We're going to be regathered and blessed double when it's all said and done. So this is not 
pronouncement of evil because of sin here. These are comforting words that once the sin is wiped away, forgiven in one day, Zechariah 3 and other places, then we'll have double blessing. The voice of him that cries in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. This is an end time context. That's what I came back here to establish. That a way at the end time has to be prepared because this culminates, this action in Isaiah 40 of preaching comfort to God's people culminates in the return of Christ to this earth. A way has to be prepared for him. A people has to be prepared for him. A bride, if you will, has to be prepared for him. So this is all important. Remember he sent John the Baptist before he began his ministry the first time and prepared the way for him. And then John said, I must diminish and he must increase. He recognized that Christ was far superior to him, but he had a preparatory work to do. Well, patterns repeat. So God needs something prepared ahead for him, and he certainly needs his bride prepared so that she can be waiting at the first resurrection. Plenty of scriptures to show that, okay? Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. We're going to have some things straightened out so that it can be understood. And the glory of the eternal shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the eternal has spoken it. So this is something that culminates in him coming and every eye seeing. Ties in with Matthew 24, doesn't it? The abomination set up, we flee. Three and a half years later, the times of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Christ returns. Talking about the same thing. Verse 9, you that bring good tidings to Zion, get you up into the high mountains. You that bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with strength, lift it up. Be not afraid. And say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Must be said. God is about to come. A way has to be prepared. Behold God. It's all about God. Not about you, me, or anybody else. Behold, the eternal God will come with strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. I think that is a reference to Zerubbabel, who will rule uh, the church just prior to the return of Christ. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. Referring to Revelation, end of Revelation 5, where it talks about his reward is with him to give reward to the prophets and the priests and the, the saints and so on. So it is an end-time prophecy. It talks about verse 17, all nations before him is nothing. Uh, let the people renew their strength in chapter 41. Here he talks in verse 19, I will plant in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, the oil tree, and set in the desert the fir tree, the pine, and the box together. Seven trees planted in the desert. Seven women taking hold of one man, as we saw yesterday. Seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3 being brought together under the leadership of those whom God places there. One man being the key figure, Zerubbabel, whom all seven churches will take hold of, the seven women of Isaiah 4. It says, verse 25, raised up one from the north, born in the north. He shall come from the rising of the sun, come from the east. So just prior to his coming to where God's people will gather, 
he will have been in the east somewhere. I don't think that means Asia. I mean, I think that means the eastern part of the United States or uh, the primary country of Israel today. All right, we're establishing a context here of the end time. He tells us, fear not, same thing he tells us in Zephaniah, same thing he says all through the book of Haggai in chapter 43, verse 1, and in verse 5. And then he says in verse 10, you are my witnesses, says the eternal, and my servant whom I have chosen. Uh, verse 12, the end of it, therefore you are my witnesses, says the eternal, that I am God. So he's speaking of his end time people here, one leader in particular, my servant, but all of us as God's witnesses. Now remember I said yesterday, a little society has to be established to witness that God is God and that he can bring peace and happiness through his spirit. So that's what Isaiah is talking about here, his end time people. Uh, verse 14, For your sake I have sent to Babylon and have brought down all their nobles and the Chaldean whose cry is in the ships. Same as Revelation 17 and 18. End time prophecy. Verse 21, he talks about his people that he's taken out in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. This people have I formed for myself and they shall show forth my praise. I think that we're talking here about a spiritual wilderness and a spiritual desert, certainly in the middle of Babylon, but it seems to have physical implications as well, not just a spiritual desert, but a physical desert that God will take his people to and that it will bloom as a rose so that people will understand and be able to see that God is working there. And the two witnesses of Satan are going to hate it with a purple passion because it is truly of the great God. And Satan hates God and God's people. All right, let's go down. Yet now here, chapter 44, O Jacob, my servant and Israel, whom I have chosen. Don't fear, Jacob. Uh, verse 7, And who as I shall call and shall declare it and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people? We talk about in the Southwest a great deal, and it's all over uh, the literature and the cliff dwellings and so on, about the Anasazis, the ancient ones. There are all kinds of historical records from the Aztecs, from the Mayans, from the Hopis, from the Chinese, from all over the world. And the records go back, not to the Middle East as a cradle of civilization, but right here. I have seen those tapestries, tapestries showing the history of those peoples. They come right back to this area the southwestern United States, and even more specifically than that, to a specific spot where there are some volcanoes. Amazingly. It has been hidden. Now, I'm establishing this, verse 9 here in this chapter, you are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? No, there is no God. I know not any. God has to establish for himself, a people that are witness that he is God. Not two, but an end-time, latter-day church. Bigger than two. The two will finish the job 
for three and a half years. But there is a bigger witness than that. It says even seven, even eight principal men will go out to the Assyrian when he comes into our land in Micah 5. It's bigger than two. All right. Let's go down and see something that is germane specifically to what we are talking about today in Daniel 9. Um, let's go to 21 of 45, or 44, excuse me. Isaiah 44, 21. Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. And we know that Physical Israel will not be serving God at the end time, but only spiritual Israel will. That's the reference Paul makes to in Romans 11. The spiritual Judah, spiritual Israel. I have blotted out as a thick cloud your transgressions and as a cloud your sins. We know that will be done in one day during the time that Joshua has his part in the end time events in Zechariah 3. Now in a larger sense, yes, the day comes in the millennium when God will remove as a cloud all of physical Israel's sin. There's always that parallel, church first, physical Israel second. This is first to the church. We'll see that here in a moment. Sing, O you heavens, for the eternal has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains, O forests, and every tree therein. For the eternal has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. Starts with spiritual Israel, eventually spreads to all physical Israel. Thus says the Eternal, your Redeemer, and he that formed you from the womb. I am the Eternal that makes all things, that stretched forth the heavens alone, and that spreads abroad the earth by myself. Let's be sure we get that. Job didn't, and he got boils. And he finally understood that, that I'm man and God is God. If we can get it now, maybe we won't need boils. Maybe we won't need to go into the Great Tribulation. Okay? All right, this is the God, the only God. Verse 25, that frustrates the tokens of the liars and makes diviners mad. Now, it made the diviners mad in the days of Daniel, did it not? When Nebuchadnezzar would have a dream and he called in all the magicians, and they'd, they'd say, okay, tell us the dream and we'll interpret it. Oh, no, you tell me the dream and then you interpret it. Ooh, that drove them mad, drove them crazy. And then Daniel came in, told him the dream, told him the interpretation. Ah, here's somebody connected with the great God. Made all those witches really upset. And makes their knowledge foolish. God is going to do something that is going to make fools of this world at the end time. This isn't done in a corner. This is a big deal that confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers. Now notice what we've been reading. This is end time, preparing the way for Christ to come. The end time church is a witness. The end time two witnesses. This is end time. This isn't something that was back in the days of Cyrus or Darius and the Babylonian Empire and Zechariah, I mean Nebuchadnezzar and all those folks. This is something at the end. This is something when the heavens will sing that God's people have been redeemed and forgiven. That has not happened heretofore, has it? So it has to be a prophecy for the immediate future in the end time. Okay? I know I'm preaching to the 
choir here, but I want this backed up before I read what is coming next. And I want it backed up well. Because otherwise, you can go to the commentaries and get confused in a hurry, thinking this is ancient history. And it's not. Okay? Verse 26, that confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers that says to Jerusalem, in time, just before Christ comes, there is a Jerusalem over there. <coughs> it isn't gone. It isn't desolate. It has inhabitants. But this one says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. Hmm. Does that mean that it is currently uninhabited? I think so. Don't know what else it could mean. And to the cities of Judah, you shall be built. Now, there's cities all over that Israel over there today. I've been there. I've gone to various ones of them. They're all over the place. So they're inhabited. And so is Jerusalem. Went there. People all over the place, crawling like flies everywhere. Full of people. It's Sodom in Egypt. Yes, it is. No Christians there to speak of. True Christians. All right, here's somebody that says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited, to the cities of Judah you shall be built, and I will raise up the decayed places thereof. <coughs> decayed, destroyed, gone. What happens when something decays? We've got a composter over here. You put stuff in, it comes out totally different. Decayed. And it says in my margin, the waste places thereof. Not just decayed, but laid waste. Nothing there. Wasteland. Doesn't that sound a lot like Jeremiah 9-11? Be desolate, no inhabitant, den of lizards. So somebody here is saying something to Jerusalem about how it has to be rebuilt and re-inhabited. It was desolate. All right? That says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. This place that has been pointed out to us recently has been dried up. It had freshwater lakes on both sides of it. Mediterranean means middle terrain, a terrain or point of land between two pieces of water. The ancients referred to the Atlantic Ocean as the Mediterranean, or uh, the middle terrain between the oceans. I still didn't get that quite right. The Atlantic Ocean was what divided, the ancients said. Steve Collins of United has gone in and showed that there was an Israelite presence all over North America earlier than Columbus. And now the question on the table today is, did it start here, there, and come across to Europe and the Middle East, or did it start there and come here? And I think that it started here and went there.
All right, this Jerusalem I'm talking about today as a possible site has the waters dried up both sides, the river and the ponds, the fountains, except for one spring. All right, that says of Cyrus, okay, it establishes a Cyrus. Now, remember, we're in the end-time context here. This isn't King Cyrus of ancient days. This is a King Cyrus who shows up, who shows up at the end time. That's the whole context here. That says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure. God is going to raise up a Cyrus who at the end time will perform the pleasure, the desires, the needs, the wants of God. Even saying, now here is a key thing that will please God. He's going to do something that will perform the pleasure of God that says to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. I sat in the office of a man recently who said to me, without a Bible in front of him, and I don't know that he even knew this was in here, Jerusalem has to be built, and the foundation of the temple has to be laid, right here. I'm not going to give you the exact location in this sermon. I don't think it's necessary for some people who could be tuned in to know that at the moment. But I'm establishing it as something that God has said will be done in the end time by a servant who will say it. And I got chills when this man said that because I had recently read it. And then the man said it to me. Now, he looked us up. He had a dream that he was to go to cane beds and find people who would listen to him that would keep the commandments of God. Run around cane beds much, you won't see much commandment keeping around here. We're the only ones that listen and he asked for volunteers to excavate the original Jerusalem and to build Jerusalem back and lay the foundation of the temple. We didn't contact him, didn't know of him. He came to us. What happened in the original story back in Ezra? Daniel talked to Cyrus. Cyrus said, who will volunteer? Exact same story. Hadn't changed a bit. Now, well, let's go on. We'll get to that in a moment in context. Thus says the Eternal who is anointed. All right, here's someone anointed of God in the end time. To Cyrus, whose right hand I have held. God has had him by the hand through his life, whoever he is to subdue nations before him. I don't know that he will... Now, the original king did uh, destroy nations on a physical level, but here it may be that he is to knock down the lies and deceptions about nations that have existed and the counterfeits that have been set up. Knock down their borders. Knock down their histories. 
knock down the false history that has been promulgated upon us. It might be that. And I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. Or hinged gates is a better translation. Remember when, that, uh, when uh, the, the Persian, Medes and Persians destroyed Babylon, they diverted the river and went in under where the river flowed through the city. The gates were left open and they went in and took over the city in one night, the impregnable fortress of Babylon. Makes you wonder about our Babylon today, if there will be some subversion and it will fall very quickly. Talks about one month, one day in Revelation 18, doesn't it? Anyway, God is going to take an end-time Cyrus. There is an original fulfillment and there's a final. And he's going to loosen the, loosen the loins of kings. He's going to loin the loosens or whatever I was trying to say. In other words, he's going to scare them to death. That's when your loins get loosened and you wet your pants, you know. To open before him the two-leaved gates or the hinged gates. God is going to show this man something that's going to make the leaders of this world wet their pants. It's going to scare them that badly. And the gate shall not be shut. Remember that what God opens cannot be shut, and what God shuts cannot be opened. Before Cyrus, at the end, God is going to open some things up, and they can't be shut up. The world will hate it with a passion, and they can't stop it. The information will get out, and it cannot be put back in the box. The gate can't be closed. I mean, once the horse is out, it doesn't do any good to shut the barn. That's exactly what's going to happen here. I will go before you. So God is going to have an end-time Cyrus, and he is going to proceed ahead and make the crooked places straight, and I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. This man that I speak of says that history has been changed. Now, to think that the whole flow of history been changed immediately hit me as, wow, how could that be? But you know, right now, we have hundreds of thousands of people, maybe millions, who don't believe that Hitler ever did what he did in Europe. History is being changed before our very eyes, even when there are photos even when there are people still alive who were there. I talked to people in Miami in the late 60s who had the stamps from the camps on their bodies and told me the story of what they had been through. So with eyewitnesses, television, radio, the printing press, Hundreds of thousands and millions are having re history rewritten before their eyes, and they believe it. We know of the book burnings in the Middle Ages when the Catholics destroyed every record they could find. And they were all handwritten records. There was no printing press, there was no TV, no radio, and no living witnesses. So they scoured the countryside trying to find every shred of true history and burn it, or hide it deep under the Vatican, if they didn't burn it. Could history have been changed? Could Satan have made some counterfeits? 
Could there be some twists and turns that are so difficult to figure out that nobody could do it unless God went before and made the rough places plain and straightened it out and made the story clear? Could that possibly be? Well, I guess it must be, because God says that's what he's going to do. Am I making the right application to it? I guess that's what remains to be seen. But the fact that it will happen is right here, undeniable. All right, let's go on. And I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places. Now, what are God's riches? The original Cyrus, I think, might be important for us to consider here. What did that Cyrus provide? The vessels of the temple. 4,600 pieces, wasn't it? Ezra 1? That's what he provided. Now those may be the hidden riches of secret places and the treasures of darkness, the things of God that the original Cyrus brought out, the final Cyrus will also do. All those people scratching around in the Middle East looking for these things have never been able to find a shred of evidence that they're over there. Wouldn't it be incredible if they turned up over here somewhere? Indiana Jones, remember the movies, looking for those things? That man, uh, his name was, uh, oh, come on I miss my brain the most of everything I've lost. Uh, what was his name? Harrison Ford? No, no, Harrison Ford was the actor. Uh, you old guys should remember it. Indiana Jones. It was named after the guy. Anyway, he's been looking in the Middle East for 30 years, and all he's found is so far what he calls one little anointing bottle. He has come over here and searched through Utah. He's seen enough evidence that he's looked here. The Mormons got enough evidence from the Jesuits that they have been in Utah, even though they believe the Garden of Eden was in Missouri. They have believed enough of this story that they came here, under pressure, yes, but their goal was to find the treasures of God. And so far, they have not found them. Am I nearly done? He said, I have five minutes. I can't believe that. Where's it gone? Okay. Well, I'm going to finish this. Start a new tape if you have to. We're hot on the story here. Now, what is the purpose of showing these things? I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Eternal, which called you by your name, am the God of Israel. This end-time Cyrus is going to be given the riches, the hidden dark things of God, that will prove to him that God is God. Even as God putting Nebuchadnezzar out to pasture for seven years and eating grass, proved to him that God is God. These secret treasures therefore, must not just be gold or silver or buried physical treasure of that nature. They must be the kind of treasure 
that will prove God is God. Follow me? That's fairly simple deduction. Because that's what it says. I am the Eternal which call you by your name. I've called you Cyrus. For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel my elect, I have even called you by your name. So it has to do not just with Cyrus, but God's elect. Now can you say that physical Israel is the elect of God today? Not by any stretch of the imagination. They are outright sinners who will be destroyed and taken into captivity. My elect is speaking of God's spiritual Israel, the church, at the end. Can't be anybody else. So what God is doing through this end-time Cyrus is for the benefit of God's people. Okay? That's the purpose. What did the original Cyrus do? He benefited the Jews by giving them temple treasures and taking, having them build the temple of God. Okay? This is for our sake. I have surnamed you, though you have not known me. This is a man that God placed a last name on, even though the man does not know God. He may know of God, but he doesn't know God. He's not converted. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded you, though you have not known me. It says twice, you've not known me. I went before you, I opened things up, I break the bars and the, whatever needed to be broken to show it to you, open the gates and they can't be shut. I did it so you may know that I'm God and so that you will serve and help my elect to fulfill my pleasures, as we read at the end of chapter 44. I girded you, though you have not known me. Now why? that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west, clear around the earth, in other words, that there is none beside me. I am the eternal and there is none else. And he goes on in superlatives about what he can do. So the whole purpose of this is to show that God is God. That is what he must do. That is what the end-time witness is all about, is that God is God. So, this Cyrus is going to work hand-in-hand with the elect of God to show who God is. And that is not done until the end time, when who who forms light and darkness and makes peace and creates evil lets this world know in no uncertain terms who he is. Now, I'm going to draw a conclusion here, which could, might or might not be right, but I'm going to lay it out here for you to consider. And that is that there is one who has laid the foundation of the spiritual temple, which will be called the house of the great God. Zerubbabel, a spiritual man, a leader of God who is converted, is said to have in Zechariah 4, laid the foundation of the temple. I think Scripture indicates that then it went dormant or ceased building for a while, but that his hands will finish it. 
So there's a converted, one of God's final two witnesses, who has laid the foundation. And he will be made by God, one way or another, to finish it. Okay? That's the spiritual temple. That's the church. The final fulfillment of Haggai, where God makes a glorious temple greater than that of Herbert Armstrong, which the old men in the church will be able to recognize as being the real, final, true church. However, we have here a man who will show up, who had not showed up, I don't believe, when the foundation of the spiritual temple was laid some years back. Is apparently only recently appeared, if he is the correct Cyrus. Now, he's said all the right things, done all the right things, and I believe has led us to the right place that is yet to be proved. So I don't know that for certain. So if he's not the man, another one has to show up pretty quick, who will say the same things and do the same things and show us the right place, and to whom will be shown the hidden treasures of God. That has to happen because it's right here in the prophecy. Now, whether this man is it or not still remains to be seen. So I'm not saying that he is it. I'm saying that there is that potentiality, okay? Understood? Still speculative to some degree. But that is the fulfillment of this. I don't know. We'll see. But this is an unconverted man. If the foundation of the temple has to be laid by Zerubbabel on a spiritual level, then what is left? I'm beginning to think fairly seriously that I did not believe this a few years back, that there has to be a physical temple built. And it has to be by a people who are the elect of God, led to that knowledge, circumstance, enhanced and helped by a Cyrus who is not converted, that God will raise up. I've long maintained that anything that the Jews did in that city of Jerusalem is not of God, because they are not of God, and it will have no spiritual value. But if God raises up, and no, when God raises up Osiris at the end, he will be shown the hidden treasures and secrets of God, and he will be used to help the elect of God lay the foundation of the temple. That, to me, in this context, would have to indicate a physical temple and a physical city of Jerusalem in a desolate place that is the den of lizards today and has no inhabitants. The present Jerusalem in the Middle East does not qualify. As Zechariah says, it has to be established in her place her own place, her original place. That leads me to think that the original site of ancient Jerusalem has been removed by deception and a counterfeit built. We shall see. But when they inquired in the book of Ezra, that verse we read at the end of chapter 5, beginning chapter 6. Was such an order given? I wanted today to go through, talk about the abomination of desolation. We didn't finish that, did we? How much is on that tape now? Maybe I'll get there next time I speak. I want to finish that. 
But what I wanted to establish here is that in Daniel 9, it says that there will be a command in the end time to build Jerusalem. So we've gone to scriptures to show that there is indeed prophecies of such a command here in Isaiah and in Zechariah and in Zechariah 12, not just Zechariah 2, 3, and 4. I think there is a very strong basis for an indication that Daniel 9 is talking exclusively in its final fulfillment of the end time and that that 70 weeks will begin at the time that all this comes together and a command is made to build physical Jerusalem in her original place. And that the temple will be built there, not at the Wailing Wall that the Jews and the Arabs are arguing about today. It will be in the land of Israel, the promised land that we inhabit today. What is the most blessed land on the face of the earth? Could you plug any nation into that blank other than the United States of America? This is part of the promised land that God promised to Abraham. And I will even take that statement a little bit further and say that it appears very, very likely that it is also the original promised land. It is a verdant land, a productive land, a beautiful land. It says in the Psalms about Zion, we sing about it, the joy of all the land. For those of you who have not seen this place where God has placed his name called Zion today, you ought to go there and look at it. It is awe-inspiring. God built it. And it is the joy of the land. Is this the place, or is it that little dump of a hill with a cemetery on it, on the side of that Jerusalem, that it is even worthy of note? It's just an ugly little hill, maybe ten feet high, that goes down into the valley there. How could it ever be described as a joy of all the land? No way. Something is amiss. Something is wrong with the picture that we have had. I think we are on the verge through a modern Cyrus, of discovering some things that are going to turn this world on its end. And isn't that really what the Bible says must happen? Let's leave it there for today and go back to Daniel 9 again.